Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Dr. Stephen Brumwell. Dr. Brumwell is the author of numerous books and articles about early American history, and today he will be discussing his latest book, George Washington, Gentleman Warrior which focuses on Washington not as a farmer or president, but as commander of the Continental Army. We'll hear in more detail how Washington's place in Virginia society influenced his ability to command, how important Lawrence Washington was to his brother George, and Washington's place in history as a military commander. And now, Drs. Brumwell and Bradburn. So here we are. This is Doug Bradburn, the founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington, and I'm delighted to say I'm joined today by Stephen Brumwell, noted author, winner of the George Washington Book Prize for his book, uh, George Washington, Gentleman Warrior. So welcome, Stephen. It's great to see you back here. Thank you very much, Doug. It's always a pleasure to come to Mount Vernon and to see yeah. how things have been progressing in the, in the library. So talk a little bit about your career as a writer. What was the, what, when did you, I know that you were a journalist early on, and, uh, but when did you start writing history books, and what was your first? Well, after I spent uh, 12 years or so working as a, a newspaper reporter, I went to university as a mature student, and I studied history, and I was mm. fortunate enough to get funding to pursue uh, research as a postgrad. And I decided to concentrate on the British Army in the, the French and Indian War. I'd always been fascinated by that period, going back to seeing TV series on The Last of the Mohicans and mm. reading magazine articles on Rogers Rangers, this kind of stuff, as a kid. Mm. So I had an interest which I thought I'd pursue. That was, was that fairly unusual in Britain for someone to be attracted to that part of the British Empire? Very unusual at that time. Mm. Uh, although, of course, my interest, which uh, I was doing my research in the kind of mid to late 90s, mm. my period of research coincided with a, a, an upsurge of interest in the kind of Atlantic right. empire, yeah. which I was kind of unaware of, but in a, in a strange kind of way, my own research was feeding into a, mm. a much bigger uh, movement. Yeah, the currents of historical creativity of many layers to them and you know I was very much involved with the trend you know the Atlantic history early in the in the in, in the 90s I went to some of these uh, things with Bernard Balin you know the transatlantic seminars at Harvard and all that and uh, but I imagine you know, from your perspective then you what you're seeing is just more work coming out that you're finding really engaging in, in your particular field you know. yeah what I what I was really trying to do was to challenge what I considered to be misleading stereotypes. Mm. And I was very surprised mm. that no one had really done that in a, an academic way by actually mm. going to the original sources yeah. and trying to just test whether the, the kind of the accepted picture actually withstood mm. the scrutiny of mm. kind of academic uh, research. So I really was, was interested in reconstructing the life of the ordinary soldier. Mm, Again, yeah. people had said, well, you, it's impossible to do this because there's no journals, there's no letters. But of course, there are mm -hmm. things out there if you're prepared to look for them where, in places where people haven't looked before. Mm. So the, the, my doctoral dissertation, I was very fortunate that I was able to uh, get it published fairly swiftly by Cambridge University Press. Mm -hmm. And uh, the book is still in print now. And it created... Uh, and what's that title? Well, the book is called Redcoats, right. British Soldier and War in the Americas, mm -hmm. 1755 to 1763. And it's, you know, people tend to brand books like that as military history yes. because it's got a, 
picture on the front of guys in red coats and it's <laughs> and it's it's about soldiers but yeah. at the same time i would say well it's it's kind of social history mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. it's about why is a book about soldiers less relevant than a book about female indentured servants mm -hmm. in philadelphia mm -hmm. it's still social history it's about yeah. trying to reconstruct the experience of uh, people from a different different age yeah. But military history had sort of fallen on hard times. I mean, uh, you know, by the time you're writing, there just wasn't. I mean, there was a kind of version of it that was being done. But the, but it's interesting that you noted, and and you see this in your book on George Washington as well, which we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, that there's there's sources that people just aren't going back to uh, who are writing military history, and and so that might be one of the reasons it kind of fell on hard times. You you aren't getting people really going back to the. The sources again. Well, I, I certainly know that the the topic I picked was very unfashionable, mm. and certainly mm. didn't help me when it came to trying to find a job. Mm. People aren't interested. They they see someone who okay. was researching this kind of fife and drum history, as they like to call it, as as someone who's kind of closeted within this this little niche market, yeah. which I think is very unfair because you know, as I emphasize, I think that the study of a social group doesn't really matter what that group is it can be just as relevant and mm. you can tease out much wider mm. uh, much more significant patterns in in my book for example I tried to uh, suggest that the success of the British Army in North America uh, during the French and Indian War where it basically learned to adapt from an organization that was going to massacred during Braddock's defeat mm. to an outfit that could survive wilderness warfare and actually go on to kind of defeat the French in Canada. But at the same time, by uh, becoming such an efficient organization and being victorious, it sowed the seeds ultimately of American independence. There was a great irony there. Mm. So I was trying to tease out uh, bigger lessons mm -hmm. from from the picture. But the whole question of military history, another, when I was doing my research, there was also something of a transformation in the way military history was seen. Mm. The so-called new military history. Yeah was actually getting quite old by the time. Right, uh, that's right, the War and Society. The War and so, Society, yeah. in fact, there's a journal called War and Society, and there's a journal called War and History, and these gathered momentum at the time I was uh, mm. doing my research. And there are now uh, significant awards for military history, yep, the Gilder right. Ehrman yeah. Award, which is, of course is yeah. very prestigious. Yeah. And uh, there's a recognition now that uh, military history is a broad church and it mm. deserves to be respected mm. in the same way as, as for example, uh, history of, of uh, Native Americans or history of mm. focusing upon slavery yeah. or civil rights, this kind of thing. Yeah. So you moved from a social historian's approach uh, to writing about great men with Wolf. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm interested in kind of, I'm basically, I suppose, a sort of a, a writer of narrative, mm. going back to mm. my journalistic roots. I think that... Even uh, a monograph like Redcoats should still be written in a way where you have an, a narrative element. A story. In, yeah. in that case, I, I kind of tried to piece together an overall picture by telling the stories of individuals. Yeah. But within the analysis, there is still that element of, right. of narrative, yeah. uh, which I think several, I think perhaps the book reached a wider market than it would have done mm. because of that narrative element, which yeah. meant that people could pick it up, read a chapter, and find out uh, the stories of individuals which go together to make a bigger picture yeah. so that whole narrative idea uh, the next the next book I wrote was actually a book about Robert Rogers mm, right but it wasn't it wasn't a biography as such it, but it was an exercise in pure mm. narrative mm. and I was very much inspired by uh, a book by a very well-known historian, Nathaniel Philbrick's book, mm -hmm. In the Heart of the Sea, mm -hmm. which I'd regard as a pure... Which is being made into a major Hollywood movie. Yeah, so well, maybe Rogers is next. Well, one can but hope. <laughs> but uh, In the Heart of the Sea uh, is a book which is driven by the narrative and it yeah. focuses on a specific episode. And mm. with the, yeah. the, the, the book on Rogers, which is it's called White Devil, which was the name that the Abenaki Indians coined for Rogers after he went and burned their, mm. their village down, mm -hmm. was really exploring a particular episode which I felt uh, epitomised a much bigger picture, which is the whole question of frontier warfare mm. in mm. the 1750s. Yeah. Who are the savages? 
trying to question. Uh, it's not a partic particularly politically correct book. Mm. I have to say, I'm not out to try and. It's not Dances with Wolves set in the 1750s. Right. This right. is a book which I which I tried to get to the bottom of. There's blood on lots behave. of hands. There's blood on everyone's hands, yeah. and uh, <laughs> we are all savages. Mm. Uh, that's the kind of the inscription which is taken from a, a graffiti found uh, back in the, the late 17th century, mm. written by a French trapper, mm. which I think is, is very telling. So I, I'm, I'm, again, going back to my interest in storytelling, I think that if you're going to write history, it doesn't matter whether you're an academic historian or a popular historian, mm. if you can't tell a story, then you're going to miss out on uh, fulfilling the potential yeah. of the subject. Right, well, let's jump to the Washington book then. Uh, George Washington, Gentleman Warrior, winner of the George Washington Book Prize in 2013. The first book that explicitly on a Washington subject to win the George Washington Book Prize. So I know it was beloved around here at Mount Vernon. Uh, how did you decide to write about George Washington? Well, it was a rather unusual situation because uh, the publishers, uh, Quirkus, basically approached me uh, with a list of names. They mm. originally had a series on basically just great lives. Yeah. And like a lot of publishing uh, ideas, this one never really got, the series mm. itself never really got beyond the, yeah. the, the initial stage. But I'd been commissioned to write about George Washington because of mm. my interest in the 18th century. He mm. was a logical person for me to pursue. Uh, so initially, I was just writing a condensed great life of Washington. Right, yeah. So, um, like, uh, it's a little biographical sure. sketch. Where really it would have been kind of 250 pages based. Good luck. Overwhelmingly. <laughs> based overwhelmingly, <laughs> on, I guess, on yeah. previously published Secondary works. Secondary works. And, and I struggled. Letters. I struggled with it because yeah. my instinct is to look for new angles. Mm. I enjoy the research, but. I, f I find it far easier to write about subjects if I think I'm contributing something new yeah. rather than simply uh, reiterating what previous people have written. That's right. I, 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 I get that sense. It's so much more exciting you know, to discover and reorient uh, than just sort of you know, find a better way to summarize things that are well known, or at least you'll feel they're well known by the time you've read all these different works. So I know that was one of the things that very much appealed uh, about the this this book when it uh, when it uh, when it got to the prize committee was that it was refreshing it was new in, in some of the angles of view that you discovered. Well, thank you for for saying that. Of course, one aspect where I think where I where I was able to contribute something new was the mere fact that I'm non-American. Mm, yeah. You know, I'm a Brit. It helps. You know, this is the guy who uh, I'm writing about the guy who basically dismantled the British Empire mm. as it was in the 18th century. And uh, you give him more credit than most Americans do, I think. Well, and, and <laughs> you know, I'm not a Washington worshipper. Yeah. Mm. You know, I, I take a realistic view to Washington. But what intrigued me was, okay, I need to try and put a, a fresh angle. And mm. I had to basically convince the publishers, once their idea of having this major series of books had basically fallen by the wayside, it gave me scope to take a more individual approach to Washington. And I said, look, I think it would be far more interesting for me if I can try and flag up an angle that hasn't been explored. And I'm increasingly interested in this idea, in the idea of Washington as a soldier, mm. which of course he was. But if Washington hadn't been a successful, ambitious soldier, he would never have become the first president mm. of the United States. Everything follows from his ambition to become a soldier. Yeah. And then I thought to myself, well, okay, what kind of soldier was he? And what motivated him to become a soldier in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was very interested in exploring his, his background and the way that kind of English roots, if you like, fed into the shaping yeah. of Washington. What did your background in research and of course the work you'd already done on the Seven Years War, how did that help you get at a Washington that you feel some other historians hadn't really come to grips with? Well, I think my background as someone who was familiar with the workings of the British Army mm. in the French and Indian yeah. War allowed me to immediately spot areas where I think previous writers had perhaps neglected to explore uh, mm. aspects of, of Washington's yeah. trajectory as a, as a soldier. Yeah. For example, Washington's 
time at the head of the Virginia Regiment mm. is obviously crucial. But uh, I think people have underplayed the fact that Washington was pretty desperate to follow in the footsteps of his half-brother Lawrence and, and gain a, a royal commission. Mm -hmm. And one of the big issues is why didn't Washington get a, a commission as a, a, royal, a royally appointed British officer? Yeah. Other members of the Virginia Regiment did. Mm. Uh, for example, Billy Fairfax, the son of, mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. Colonel Fairfax of Belvoir, one of yeah. Washington's mentors, became. But uh, he had a he had a. Uh, I didn't realize he had a commission yeah, in he a was, British. He was killed. I know he went and was he was killed. killed at the Battle of Quebec. Yeah, in okay. uh, I think it was the twenty. But he wasn't fought. fighting as a provincial force. He was in. in he a, was in a regular in regiment. A British regiment. Yeah, yeah. and so as an was, officer, he yeah. was an officer. It was possible. Extraordinary. Uh, but of course, well, he the was way a Fairfax. He was that, a Fairfax, yeah. and his father had been a, a, a regular officer yeah. during the, the okay. War of the Spanish Succession. And okay. one of the, the facts people don't really explore is, is why didn't Washington become a regular officer? Now, of course, to become a regular officer, unless you are appointed for some act of mm. supreme merit, for example, uh, a volunteer or a, even a, a sergeant, Mm. could be promoted to the rank of ensign, the, mm. the, the, the most junior rank, mm -hmm. for an act of outstanding bravery, for example, being the first man into the breach of a captured fortress, mm -hmm. uh, saving uh, an officer's life, or just doing something very conspicuous. But most mm. officers bought their commissions. Right. Right. This was the accepted practice. You bought yeah. your rank for a set fee. There's no evidence that Washington ever offered to buy his commission. Mm. Of course, Washington, at a very early age, was appointed to the rank of, of major, that was in the militia. Then he became yeah. a major in the Virginia Regiment, who yeah. weren't militia, they were provincials. Yeah. And many historians even continue to mess that up. Yeah, I mean, you still see references to Washington commanding militia. Yeah, he wasn't, he was never he was, a, he was a regular establishment of provincial. Sure, he, this is one of Virginia the, Regiment. This is yeah. one of the issues yeah. I sought to try and yeah. uh, address. And yeah. despite the fact that I did it, did take pains to do that in my book. Subsequent works still, yeah, they still bring out the, this yeah. this militia. Well, it's the difference between taking seriously this aspect of his life or yeah. just using it as sort of prelude to something else. Sure, I mean this is yeah. what I yeah. this is what I did, and of course, uh, not everyone wants to know mm. that much. Right, that not everyone wants to take my arguments on board. They want yeah. their George Washington to be the Washington they learned about at school. Yeah. They want to believe the stories. The, that they read about back in the, the 50s and the 60s mm. because I was taken to task for example for my account of the the uh, the Battle of Princeton where yeah. you will still read accounts of Washington riding between uh, the British firing line right. and his own line and one of his aides-de-camps placing the hat in front of his face because he can't bear to see his excellency shot down right. and yet that's a story that originates in a very bogus source yeah. From the from a much later period, yeah. which has been discredited, yet you will still see that source reproduced mm. simply because mm. it's such a good story. Yeah. I mean, as a former newspaper man, I perfectly understand yeah. why people want to print the legend rather than the fact. But uh, I've always now it because yeah, it's a tremendous frustration from myself who uh, I, I hear obviously a lot of people talk about Washington and and noted scholars will sometimes still and and even they'll say. You know, this story is probably apocryphal, but then they say it and they use it as a way to understand the man. <laughs> it's just very well, frustrating. A story like that, yeah. of course, as I mentioned, I think I think that the, the diary concerned is, is certainly bogus, yeah. but it's not to suggest that it doesn't point out an underlying truth. There are plenty of other accounts yeah. of Washington behaving Leading in the front, ways in danger. That yeah. yeah, where his own men are, are basically saying Wish Washington wouldn't be so right. such a, so a, an upfront leader because it's a miracle he was never he was never killed or, or seriously wounded. So, well, gentleman warrior, what is that? What does that mean? Well, the the kind of the basic thesis of the book was that Washington was an effective commander, not simply because he was someone who wanted to be a soldier, a warrior. And when I use the term warrior, I, I use it deliberately because I think Washington uh, wasn't just as a cold uh, commander in the sense, or a calculating commander in the sense of someone like Nathaniel Greene, mm. 
who basically is a strategist and, and mm-hmm. will mm-hmm. weigh up the odds. I think Washington's instinct was actually to be quite an aggressive fighter. Mm. That was his, his natural instinct, was yeah. to attack the go enemy, go but circumstances yeah. uh, deflected him from doing so. Mm. But I think uh, one side of Washington was the, uh, the natural warrior. The other uh, side of his character, which goes back to his early days in Virginia, was his evolution uh, as a gentleman. And here, the proximity to the Fairfax family at Belvoir, mm. just mm. a few miles away, was crucial because mm. these were a family who, unlike many other Virginia gentry families, had actually come from England. They yeah. weren't born in the colonies. They'd been born in England. They'd come over to Virginia. Yeah. And so uh, Washington, through uh, the fact that his brother Lawrence married into the Fairfax family, became mm. a regular guest at Belvoir. Yeah. And so he was given almost kind of a pure he was introduced to an unusually pure strain of uh, gentry society where he took on a lot of uh, ideas about the way a gentleman should behave. Yeah, I think that connection to Fairfax is so fundamental to understanding Washington. Uh, I mean, he was, by being the half-brother of Lawrence, he was a brother of those Fairfax people. I mean, he was part of the family as it was understood, you know, at the time and think that close connection would would, uh, would you know was something he tried to lean on as much as as he could you know given his own circumstances well I, I, I think it was a, a very fortunate uh, coincidence that the, the the Fairfaxes were so close by mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. I think again it's something I try to emphasize in my book and again people reviewers for example haven't really picked up on it or, or I don't think, well, not so far anyway, maybe it will, ve- it will eventually seep into the, mm. the kind of the, 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 the knowledge bank, if you like. But I think the, the Fairfax influence was crucial. I mean, people talk about Sally Fairfax, and mm. I mentioned Sally Fairfax. And again, I think she was a motivating factor for the young George because, you know, he, as a teenager, he had a crush on Sally. He wanted to impress Sally. How do you impress mm. uh, this young woman? Well, one way of impressing her is to act the big man and to go out and do brave things mm, mm-hmm. and ironically while Sally does kind of fend the young George off mm. uh, for, for a long period when he finally does emerge as the, the man of the hour in the wake of Braddock's defeat yeah. suddenly she becomes a lot friendlier mm. towards him wants him to come and have tea at Belvoir mm, mm. and uh, so I think again in many ways the Fairfax connection is 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 very important particularly in in shaping the young George as someone who learns to behave in a kind of restrained Mm. way and learned how to behave in uh, polite society and obviously in Mm. his 20s he had problems conforming to that that model because he was a young man with with learning how to to Mm. behave did Washington become a better officer after the, the failures at, uh, at Fort Necessity, maybe the, the brashness at Jumonville's Glen, or did he, uh, did he learn more as he reflected on his French and Indian War experience later on? I think uh, Washington's experience during the French and Indian War, it, it starts of course with these episodes at Jumonville Glen, mm-hmm. extremely violent, uh, yeah. traumatizing, yeah. bloody encounter and uh, then yeah he writes that letter famously you know I, yeah, but I loved hearing the, the bullets, bullets whistle, whistle. yet yeah, the reality of what happened yeah. was extremely so different. grisly with people yeah. having their heads smashed in with tomahawks and yeah. the half king apparently yeah. plucking yeah. Jumonville's brain out of his shattered cranium and, and mm-hmm. washing his hands as he described it mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. what was Washington trying to do I mean was he yeah. trying to deal with the horror of the situation by just glossing over it. Yeah, sort of like this is how I'm supposed to yeah. sort of respond in this kind of gallant way. And then the the episode at Fort Necessity where, you know, he, again, I think this is an example of his, not quite glory hunting, but he feels he has to behave in a certain way. You don't yeah. back off in the face of the odds. You stand your ground and you fight. Yeah. And uh, interestingly enough, although the capitulation at Fort Necessity, ironically, on the Fourth of July, mm. is a, you know a clear-cut defeat. Washington emerges from it with credit in the eyes of Virginians because he's behaved 
as a man of honour. Mm. He's fought bravely. He's conducted himself yeah. as a as a gentleman should. Well, and I think that sense, even in the mili- the military texts in the 18th century, correct me if I'm wrong, where the notion isn't uh, greatness on the battlefield doesn't know, come from winning. It comes from you know doing it the right way, and you know there's. You know, you won't lose honor from a, a loss if it was done. No, if it was perceived is, to be, you know, you did all you could do. Kind of. There's thing. such a thing as a kind of a defeat with honor. Right. The whole system of the so-called honors of war. Of course, there was yeah. a, a, a yeah. very ritualized code of conduct whereby, yeah. for example, if a, a, a fortress is under siege, as long as the garrison put up a right. gallant defense for a right. kind of a certain yeah. period, credible defense, they're able to capitulate yeah. before. Obliging their uh, besiegers to storm right. the fortress and yeah. put everyone to the sword, yeah. and then then they're allowed to march they out with their, their colors, their drums yeah. beating and their colors yeah. flying. And so this is very important. Yeah. But going back to your original question, what did Washington learn? Did yeah. what, did he undergo some kind of learning curve during the French and Indian War? Yeah. Well, by 1758, when he participates in the uh, Forbes campaign yes. against a Fort successful Duquesne, attack, which Forbes. succeeds where Braddock had failed in in. 1755 he'd certainly learned a lot he'd learned to kind of uh, he'd learned about leadership in the sense that mm-hmm. he had had uh, the, the very very frustrating task of trying to defend the the, the frontier the, yeah. the Blue Ridge Mountains basically uh, with just a few hundred men mm. which was a thankless task and almost an impossible task he'd learned a lot about leadership but he'd also I think become a lot more realistic mm. he'd pretty much given up his quest to become a royal officer, he yeah. realised that just wasn't going to happen. He wasn't going to suddenly become appointed as colonel of the v- Royal Virginia Regiment. Yeah. That wasn't going to happen. So he seems to have become more realistic. But uh, in terms of he hadn't had that much combat experience since Braddock's defeat. He, mm. the kind of nature of the warfare he was engaged in was. He was really yeah. more concerned in trying to run a regiment, trying to organise, training the regiment, training, keeping them supplied, logi- moving learned, them from here to there. To sort of well, he he learned yeah. a lot about logistics. Yeah. He learned a lot about uh, how you deal with civilian mm. authority, yeah. and he made a lot of mistakes. But of course, by making mistakes, the the key thing about Washington was he actually did learn from his mistakes. He yeah. just didn't he didn't keep on repeating the mistakes yeah. he learned from his mistakes and I think that's key to his key to his success mm-hmm. during the Revolutionary War yeah uh, so was Washington uh, an innovator as a military figure or was he is he you don't see him in that light uh, no I, I'd, I'd see him really as a kind of a, a conservative mm. militarily uh, during the French and Indian War he'd had a lot of frustrations with the militia the sort of the amateur volunteer right. yeah. soldiers who turned out in a crisis, and his, yeah. his faith <laughs> is in the professional soldiers, mm-hmm. and uh, and there's another irony here. Uh, he'd witnessed the uh, dissolution of a, of a regular force at Braddock's defeat. Mm. Yeah. So why, having witnessed this at first hand, does he still maintain his faith in? A unit which is basically mimicking the British mm. regular pattern. The Virginia Regiment is a, the blueprint for the Virginia Regiment is the, the British regular army. Yeah. And the Virginia Regiment forms a blueprint for what would become the Continental mm. units mm. Uh, during the Revolutionary War. So Washington, really, he's harking back to a, a standing army model. Mm. He realizes pretty early on that the only way you're going to maintain a military struggle is by having trained permanent uh, a, a trained permanent force mm. which resembles the British model or re- resembles the European model mm. and his only experience of the European model was the British army why does he survive as the commander-in-chief during the Revolutionary War after so many frustrations uh, defeats around New York particularly in the, the low ebb perhaps of the the army in that year there's another low ebb in the 1780s probably in 1780 probably how does he uh, How's he able to maintain his position as the top dog? Well, I think from the outset, and this is something I, I again, I think goes back to the whole gentleman warrior aspect. Mm. When it came to selecting the commander in chief, Congress was looking for certain attributes. You had to be a native born American. Mm. So that ruled out British born uh, 
officers right. who subsequently yeah. Charles Lee even yeah Horatio Gage people, people like that people loved him for some reason and yeah. and also Washington going back to his gentleman warrior credentials he had military experience and he also had the gentlemanly bearing there were plenty mm. of native born officers out there like uh, uh, Israel Putnam for example old putt old putt yeah but you know old putt I mean, his had, father was involved in the Salem witch trials he's that right. I, I hadn't I hadn't realized extraordinary but, that's how old he is <laughs> but this was someone who had extensive experience and was something of a legend for his 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 uh, activities as a ranger during yeah. the French and Indian War. Right. He was famous, yeah. but you know he was a folksy type character. He didn't have the gentlemanly bearing that you needed. Mm. Uh, and Washington, of course, he looked the part. People often say mm. Washington, you know, six foot two at an, in, a, in an era when most people were about five foot six. Mm. Uh, he looked the part. And he knew how to dress again, going back to his kind of uh, early, early days. He knew how to conduct himself. And I think that was very important in an era when so much hung upon a way someone looked. Yeah, there's so much performance in it. Yeah, there, there is a lot of performance. And, and, uh, but it, it obviously mattered because you do hear accounts of how Washington's soldiers, even though they're kind of dressed in rags, mm. Washington's always immaculate. He's there yeah. with his uniform, yeah. his famous blue and buff outfit he looks the yeah. part and his soldiers are proud of him yeah and they they look up to him because they they want to follow someone mm. who looks that way mm. but to, to answer your question I think the real crisis came in mid 1777 when Horatio Gates had just won the Battle of Saratoga right. with a little yeah. bit of help from people like Benedict Arnold of course. Yeah. Um, Washington was incredibly frustrated because he'd been beaten at Brandywine yeah. and he'd come close to Securing clinching a victory at Germantown, Germantown, yeah, but he seemed so. Uh, which was the ultimate incredible. frustration, and yeah. and he vents his kind of spleen in a letter where he kind of bewails the fact that Gates has had the support of a well motivated northern militia. Yeah. Well, Washington has the kind of the Philadelphia mm, militia mm, who yeah. don't seem to be anywhere yeah. near as kind of combat yeah. uh, ready, and he's he's obviously very very frustrated, and so this is a bit of a low point. People start. Mm. gossiping about oh well you know maybe we should look at someone else and this is the background to the so-called Conway right, right. Uh, cabal mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which historians will di dispute just how serious that really was but it was definitely yeah. an undercurrent yeah. of uh, a dissatisfaction amongst certain people I think some historians would suggest the Conway cabal is in some ways created by Washington supporters as a way to sort of uh, to root out any disaffection, any disaffection yeah. that's starting to emerge, that they they jump on top of it immediately. Not Washington, but his people. Yeah, well, what are Washington out there sort of rooting it out. Washington, know? by that stage, one of the reasons Washington does uh, survive is mm. that uh, what one of the reasons why Washington is effectively unassailable mm. is he is surrounded by this cohort of Praetorians, if you like, mm. Mm. Uh, people like you know he's got his. Henry Knox, yeah. Alexander Hamilton, yeah. Nathaniel Green. He's got a loyal band mm. of brothers, if you like, a band of officers, mm. who not only do they aspire to the kind of same qualities that Washington is propagating, mm. this idea of you have to be a gentleman, you have to be a man of honor. Mm. Uh, they admire him and they've hitched their fortunes to his wagon. Yeah. If he goes down, they go down. It's a talented group. Right yeah, there. and of course, yeah. it is a talented group of, of self-made, Soldiers, mm. uh, people like Henry Knox, right. famously yeah. a bookseller in, in Boston. Yeah. Uh, Alexander Alexander Hamilton, of course, an outsider, very very gifted individual. Uh, Nathaniel Green, uh, former Quaker, again with mm. no previous military experience, but with natural instincts. Mm. These are I visited uh, his homestead at uh, uh, Forge uh, Green Forge Farm, Rhode Island, in Rhode Island, and uh, got to hold his musket that he used wow. when he first put together that yeah, that American. group of uh, you know former Quakers yeah. uh, when they marched to Boston, and uh, it's it's still there as well as one of his, his uh, dress sword as well is, is there anyway. But but I, side but I, side I, note, I think that Washington, he kind of. Uh, but these, these people who Washington had encouraged, he obviously was someone who knew talent. And mm. one of his gifts, I think, as a commander mm. was his ability to identify mm. uh, good subordinates. Yeah. And he, from a very early stage, these are people who were, were 
gained the rank of brigadier or, or they were promoted swiftly to mm. senior rank at a very early stage in the war mm. and even though they made mistakes mm. just as Washington did Washington was I think sufficiently savvy to realize that you know these were the kind of people he needed he needed these so he could delegate work to people like Alexander Hamilton basically was was you know Washington's yeah. secretary mm. and you know if you look at that copious correspondence so many of those documents are in Hamilton's hand mm -hmm. and Washington has a whole kind of stable of, mm -hmm. uh, of, of uh, young people who young officers who admire him in mm -hmm. fact they worship him really mm -hmm. so uh, talk about something uh, you discovered in the course of your research in the primary sources that surprised you that you feel like is, is a real important aspect of the story that you you know you you go back to when you think about that book and and uh, and and why you were able to find some things other people hadn't uh, recognized it can be it can be small it can be grand but what what is something that you really like that you've discovered yeah well uh, I was very keen as, as I mentioned before about kind of trying to trace the uh, roots of Washington's desire to become a soldier and I think that Lawrence Washington is is crucial to that. And of course, at Mount Vernon, we have that mm. painting of yes. Lawrence, which yeah. I think very significantly yeah. uh, hangs in Washington's yeah. Uh, own... Yeah, in his man cave. In yeah, his, study. His, yeah, his den, if you like. Yeah. So this is what he... Uh, this is what he looks upon, and it's obviously very important to him. Now, one of the things... I was, I was very interested to try and think, well, if... Lawrence was so important. Why was he so important? Previous biographers of Washington had always assumed that Lawrence kind of went to fight the Spanish at the Siege of Cartagena mm. in the early 1740s. Didn't really do much. Just kind of was yeah. stuck on board ship. Yeah, did he get off the ship? That was the question. He was, yeah. he was there basically, his, his unit uh, of the uh, American regiment, not the Virginia regiment, mm. by the way, as some people have pointed out, mm. the American regiment, uh, was where were the soldiers from the American regiment? They were well, they were they were recruited, Virginia, well, North they were recruited from from throughout the colonies. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but Virginia, I think, contributed three or four companies out of of, of the total yeah. of of ten or so. So there was mm -hmm. a significant Virginian uh, contingent. But I thought, well, if Lawrence was such an influence, what did he actually do? And we mm -hmm. only have one letter from Lawrence. Yeah. Uh, written during that campaign which doesn't go into any great detail mm. or do, it does allude to the fact that if if uh, there is any honor to be gained his men deserve their share of it and mm. I was intrigued by this mm. and uh, so I was determined to try and nail down what Lawrence actually did and I, I did manage to find specific references to an episode in which he was involved which was this an amphibious assault upon a Spanish battery mm. and yeah, I came across right came across this in a work by uh, Tobias Smollett who wrote Roderick Random which deals with the Siege of Cartagena mm. but he uh, Smollett also wrote a factual account of the Siege of Cartagena Smollett which is, was there right he was he was he was there as a surgeon's mate okay. yeah. in the fleet did he uh, get imprisoned at some point was he captured I'm not sure but he he definitely witnessed those he goes on to translate a lot of things into Spanish he does and yeah. he, he I, I mean from Spanish yeah it was like Don Quixote George Washington's yeah. copy of Don Quixote yeah that's very interesting I, mean, I, I can't pretend to be an expert on Smollett but yeah. he wrote a lot of stuff which is nowhere near as high profile mm. as his mm. as his as his fiction right and within mm. the non-fiction account there is a specific reference to uh, Lawrence Washington being, or Captain Washington, who is Lawrence, yeah. being amongst the officers who gained great honor in attacking this battery. Interesting. Now, since publishing uh, George Washington, Gentleman Warrior, uh, I've managed to firm that up by coming across another account written by a, a British officer, which uh, refers to the same episode. And there's a, a, a very good book came out uh, a couple of years ago by Stephen Sanders Webb oh, yeah. Marlborough's America yeah. which deals in great detail yeah. with the Siege of Cartagena and cites that particular source the British officers mm. account and, and uh, Stephen Sanders Webb is, is very keen to kind of uh, tease out the Siege of Cartagena as being some mm. kind of a, a, a stepping stone if you like mm. towards the uh, He's very interested in the legacy of, of right. Marlborough's officers yeah. in 
the imperial uh, the development yeah. of British in, in the colonies, yeah. how all these men like could park. So and anyone who's interested in, there, but yeah. I was very pleased to yeah. see that what he said yeah. uh, fit with that. Fit with what I come source. up with, although he goes into far more detail. Yeah. But but the sources he's found corroborated what I'd uh, yeah. found, and so for me that was a significant point. Hmm. Uh, as regards George Washington himself, what I was really trying to do because of the the publication of Washington's papers in very authoritative editions now, in new editions, uh, it's very difficult to come up with a, a kind of a documentary find. It's right. more a question yeah. of kind of reinterpreting. It is, yeah. yeah. I mean, but there's so much that the, you know, the connections can still be made. I sure. And, and also, I think people haven't looked mm. at the, one of the reasons why I, I spent a lot of time looking at the French and Indian War. I mean, mm. just because papers have been published doesn't mean that people necessarily read them yeah, uh, right. as as yeah. as closely as they should mm. uh, and I that's think there's right. a lot of material particularly on the French and Indian War where you can glean a lot about Washington's attitudes mm. uh, by just looking at how he for, for example how he conducted the affairs of the Virginia Regiment how uh, and officers uh, letters from his officers mm. uh, there's a very revealing letter I think uh, I think it was written by George Mercer, one of his officers in the Virginia Regiment, where they're talking, they're discussing the, the women of Charleston. And he's writing uh, to George Washington in a very familiar way, which suggests to me, it, it talks about basically the kind of the heaving, that the women yes. of Charleston don't That's have right. the kind of the heaving bosoms of our Virginia belt. Or, um, right. But the, the language yeah. is quite explicit. It, it suggests yeah. to me that here were these two young men who obviously you know, yeah, indulged about in this, badinage yeah. about yeah. the bells of, how the bells of, of uh, mm. Charleston compared with, with those of Virginia. And of course they were young men mm. interested in women, interested yeah. in girls. Yeah. And I think it, it, that letter I'd never seen it used before. Yeah. And yet to me, it, by any of Washington's biographers, I don't know why, maybe they considered it somehow too smutty or because it wasn't written by Washington. Mm. then. They missed it, but to me, it's very revealing. It, it mm. casts Washington in a human light. Yeah. You know, he's a young guy. He's interested in women. Here's one of his friends uh, writing to him in a kind of a chummy yeah. way that young men yeah. do interact yeah. with and each you, other. Yeah, it's certainly not the first time he would have had that no. kind of a and conversation. There must have been. You don't do that. There must have been <laughs> other letters. There must be other letters out there, yeah. which have either been lost or are waiting to be found. Yeah. So uh, it does keep our fingers crossed. We just uh, found one from that period, actually. Washington's uh, at the uh, Fairfax House, the Carlisle House. Um, uh, sorry, Carlisle House in Alexander, recovering very shortly after the death of, of William Fairfax. He's at Carlisle House, and he's um, subscribing to this uh, North American magazine. And this uh, Smith is the is the publisher's name in Philadelphia. And Smith, from letters we do know, had corresponded with Washington about the facts of the French and Indian War and Washington was kind ah, of serving yes. in this role as he a, wanted, as he a wanted war correspondent yeah, yeah he's kind of trying to fix the facts but, but anyway this letter is just of Washington subscribing to the guy's magazine which, which just came up you know out of the blue uh, for auction it was, it's undocumented in the papers we now have it here in the Washington Library so it will be documented but uh, yeah so we hope the 1760s and 50s boy you, you hope there's got to be more out there somewhere um, if it isn't all destroyed. But uh, I think yeah. also it's a question of looking beyond the obvious suspects, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, sure. I think there's a, there must be a lot of material lurking in, for example, county record offices mm, yeah. in the UK. Mm, mm. Uh, but most people wouldn't look there. Mm. Uh, for example, a few years back, very significant material on Benjamin Franklin and the Braggart expedition right. surfaced yeah. in the British yeah. British Library. Where was that? It was I think it was the British, British Library. Library. But I it, it was published in the Quarterly. It was, it was published it, in the yeah. William & Mary Quarterly, yeah. but it was material which had always been out there, but mm. was in a collection of papers which wasn't the obvious place to look. Right. right. So I, I, I think... Yeah, so you're saying sort of attachments of other things that sure. ended up somewhere else Yeah, and, and that I, someone had forwarded I, along. I, I know through yeah. experience, for example, working yeah. through papers in the, the National Archives in London in, in Q, the old uh, public records, oh, yeah. that there were massive collections. Mm. For example, uh, when I was researching my book, Redcoats, 
I spend a lot of time in the court martial papers. Uh, yeah. And in those court martial mm. papers, there can be incidental material yeah. on yeah. events which you wouldn't expect to find. Yeah. Uh, backstories of individuals, and when they're caught in a particular situation, the spotlight focuses on them at that time. Yeah. And suddenly you get someone's account of an episode which gives a, a different perspective. And mm. I'm sure there must mm. be material mm. uh, like that lurking within yeah. those collections, but no one has yeah. comprehensively gone through them. You'd need yeah. years to yeah, do it. Lifetime. You'd, you'd need, you'd need uh, several, several months, and, if not more. And, and a lot of luck. <laughs> and you need a lot of luck, but I think as more and more collections are starting to be calendared yeah. mm. and even put online, mm. although it's only a tiny fraction of what is out there, yeah. I think by the simple process of people methodically going through the material, mm. they will flag up stuff, but then you have to appreciate, you have to have someone doing it who appreciates the, the significance mm. of what they're finding. Uh, so we, we're, we're running out of time, so let's wrap up with a couple questions. I do want to talk about what you're working on now because I think it's, you know, I want you to have a chance to kind of talk about it. But uh, as a final wrap up to Gentleman Warrior, Stephen Rumwell, Gentleman Warrior, George Washington, uh, here's a here's a kind of a basic question. When you think about the great military commanders in world history, the great captains of the ancient world, the great military figures, uh, you know, Frederick the Great, you know, Napoleon, these these people who, who always are on the lists. Uh, where is Washington? Is he a great military figure in your mind, or is he? He's or is he? Well, what is he? I mean, how do we? How should we think about him in the context of military leaders? throughout time? Well, the, the, the basic thesis, I guess, of my book is that Washington deserves to be remembered first and foremost as a soldier. Mm. Uh, if he hadn't been a, an effective soldier, he would never have been a, a major mm. political figure of the 18th century, a major on, on the world stage. Yeah. So then we have to look at, okay, what makes a, a great commander? Now, I would never argue that Washington was a, a, a superb strategist. Mm in the way of, say, uh, in a Robert E. Lee mm -hmm. or Ulysses S. Grant type way to use American parallels mm -hmm. or in a, a Napoleonic or Frederick the Great mm -hmm. uh, level. Uh, but I would say that he was a great commander in the sense that he was someone who had the necessary qualities to maintain uh, a war effort under very disadvantageous mm -hmm. conditions. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think to become an inspirational leader, uh, you can have qualities which uh, can override those of, of, of being uh, an inspired strategist. He was obviously, he had the, the qualities that were necessary to be an effective leader. He had the determination, he had the staying power, he had the ability to inspire others. And I think he also did learn uh, about uh, strategy to the extent that he learned that you know, it's not enough just to stand your ground mm. and yeah. sacrifice your troops. Uh, you you have to sometimes you have to evade so you can come back mm. and and fight again. But uh, so I th I think that Washington does deserve to be regarded as an effective commander. And in fact, a few years ago, the National Army Museum in London they had a debate to try and establish who was Britain's greatest foe. That's right. Yeah. And uh, That's right. I was. Right. I was I was kind of invited to fight Washington's corner, mm -hmm. and Washington ended up winning the debate, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And it was quite amusing because I I got it I got a lot of stick from American commentators, yeah. who assumed that this was some kind of a payback, right? Some so negative sort of thing, yeah. Brit trying right. to get finally get there because some of the other ones were Nazis, right? I mean, like Rommel. Well, and, yeah, there was you know. there was Rommel and and <laughs> yeah. yeah, and 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 it was like I my argument was that Washington. Yeah. deserved the uh, kudos mm. of the title of Britain's greatest foe mm. because of what he had what he you know, his his achievements mm. and it was I was highly amused when the Huffington Post used this uh, they picked up on the story and they they used it as a way of oh those Brits they're still sour after all this time they <laughs> got to get some payback on you missed the point those yeah. Brits with their bad teeth and uh, are you surprised that Americans missed the point of a debate in England well they, I, think the, I think the Huffington Post did it deliberately I think they yeah. knew perfectly well what yeah, the, the, the real story was but yeah. they 
they uh, decided to go with the yeah. the, the Brit baiting. That's fun. And yeah, it amused me. And uh, <laughs> but I, I yeah. So but it but it that uh, debate itself, I think it did underline the point that there's more mm. to being a commander than mm. being yeah. some kind of than being a Rommel. Yeah. Right. Although of course Rommel, you know, was also an inspirational leader as well, yeah. as well as being an effective uh, strategist. But uh, I think Washington had the qualities mm. that, you know, he was a great admirer of Marlborough, of Frederick the Great. He mm. famously wanted to try and acquire busts yeah. of those generals to, to put on the on the, yeah. the shelf at Mount Vernon. And he yeah, well, including Caesar too, which yes. people always uh, and wonder about. Yeah, yeah. the the uh, there's a great letter you probably know it well. Um, William Fairfax, Colonel Fairfax, writing to Washington and mentioning oh, yeah. that he has... During the French and Indian War. Yeah, yeah, and you have with you Caesar's commentaries and yeah. Quintus, somebody yeah. or another. And it's, I've always interpreted that letter to mean that either you know Washington had borrowed it from Fairfax's library or Fairfax gave it to him uh, to read out there, and that's why he probably wanted, when he's coming back after the French had wanted Caesar, because this is a man... Whose you know commentaries on Gaul is experiencing very similar conditions to what Washington's dealing with, sure. defending this frontier with a, a supposedly loyal population that's not particularly loyal, but then also a, a, bar, a barbarian population that is uh, you know pressing on you in all different ways. And I I find that letter fascinating because of that that notion that because people of that would always ask, well, why would he want Caesar because he's the anti-Caesar and you know ultimately and all this. But I think it's that connection. To yeah. his service in the French and Indian War, that he's connecting with this great captain. Yeah, I, I think. So. I think uh, Washington, particularly, if you go back to the 1750s, mm. you know, he is admi a great admirer of the the great captains yeah. of history. Yeah. Interestingly enough, another one of the busts he wanted to acquire was Charles XII of Sweden. Right. The sort of the the, the Viking of yeah. the, the of the kind of the Augustan age, if you like, yeah. and he was a notoriously rash mm. commander. Mm. And again, you know, the ultimate warrior mm. uh, of the of the yeah. era, and yeah. I think that again is telling. And I think those kind of yeah. stories haven't really, or those kind of aspects of Washington's character, for which we have this kind of tantalizing evidence, mm. haven't really been emphasised as much as they should be. Mm. That's something I tried to, to do in my book. Again, whether this kind of theory will be taken on in the broadest Washington scholarship, who knows? It's, too early to tell, really. Yeah, but it's, uh, it's too early to tell. The impact will be there, though. It's a great book. He won the the, the prize with it. He can't do much more than that, uh, you know, to be widely read and regarded in the field of certainly Washington studies, and I think, uh, hopefully, more broadly as well. Uh, let's just quickly finish up here uh, with uh, your current project. Uh, what are you What are you after right now? What's the big question? Who's the target? Well. At the moment, I'm uh, researching and just beginning to write a book which explores the events of 1780, which I see as the crisis year mm. of the Revolutionary War. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you want to talk about Washington's qualities as a leader, then this is the kind of the low point in terms of the frustrations mm. he faces. Mm. This is the, the point at which his tenacity really is important. And, and one of the biggest body blows that Washington suffers is the defection of his erstwhile most um, mm. favoured military son, Benedict Arnold. Mm. Uh, Benedict Arnold's uh, attempt to betray West Point to the British. I'm very interested mm. in uh, the circumstances, what actually happened. Uh, again, I'm attracted to the kind of the narrative arc mm. of that story. Mm. I'm not interested in writing a biography of Arnold. Right. There already are biographies and, and there will, I'm sure, be many more, although I have to explore Arnold's backstory because yeah. unless you do that, you don't... It's motivation you, to, you have to, to guess. Yeah. You, yeah, you have to. But I'm also interested in, in uh, trying to put together how that episode fits into mm. the bigger crisis yeah. uh, and how what impact did it have? Yeah. How did it uh, affect attempts to try and galvanize the revolutionary war effort when it was at a low point. Did it actually do that? Mm. Uh, because Arnold becomes this kind of lightning rod of hatred for hatred. Yeah, it's like. still a name today in America used for any kind of betrayal, any, any, I mean, you know, as, as just the name that everyone knows, even if they know nothing about what happened in the revolution. Sure. As somebody not to be trusted. 
sure who's I, done you done you wrong and uh, so so just wow I mean you know a, a sort of cosmic impact in American psyche at least that, that comes out of that moment I'm, I'm very interested in Arnold's motivation mm. and mm. we were talking earlier about source material where you're going to find it mm. Arnold mm. didn't leave a journal for kind of obvious reasons I guess yeah. <laughs> and the, the correspondence of course has to be pieced together there's mm. lots of gaps he never really uh, stated why mm. he did, he had various declarations sure yeah which he made after he defected to the British yeah there's the one anti-papist one that he puts out sure and, uh, and, and yeah. people have kind of uh, at the time it was assumed that he was basically kind of greedy Mm, mm, and he, yeah. or, or just he was kind of From somehow money, yeah. corrupt mercenary he, he, he money, was he was yeah. corrupt he was influenced by uh, the devil and yeah. in the wake of Arnold's treason you have these kind of he is in want of his his actual physical presence he is burned in effigy is hanged in effigy mm. at uh, Hartford in Connecticut mm. there's a big procession in, in Philadelphia very ritualistic mm. and uh, these processions emphasize the, the, the fact that Arnold's being tempted by the devil. Mm. And this is almost like going back to kind of Salem or something like Do that. Do wars need heroes and villains? Well, I guess that his treason uh, came at a fortuitous moment mm. in the sense that uh, treason of the blackest die, mm. that phrase is soon circulating like wildfire mm. through everything from mm. orderly books yeah. to picked up by newspapers you'll yeah. see it in private correspondence people yeah. somehow it's lodged in people's minds and you'll see it occur in, in letters it's such a conspiratorial minded populace to begin with plus they've all read Shakespeare and they're all looking for that you know that villain to emerge and uh, you know, there's something happening there. well you need you do need villains and what I'm yeah. interested in trying to explore was how long did the impact of Arnold's treason last hmm. Well, of course, as, as you've mentioned, Arnold is still a Benedict. Even if you just say Benedict, people mm. will know who you're talking about. That's right. It's a, a lingering notoriety which still resonates now. It's not since Benedict Cumberbatch that Americans can stomach well, exactly. the name anymore. Exactly. So. Uh, he, 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 it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a name that still, still resonates. And uh, Arnold, what I'm interested in trying to establish is what would have happened that Arnold was an asset that the British never really used. Mm as well as they could have done. And several people, for example, Admiral Rodney, mm. he immediately, uh, who was a, a real fighting naval officer, yeah. unlike some of the yeah. officers during the revolution, he out. immediately recognized the qualities in Arnold yeah. that could be harnessed. They mm. were exactly what was lacking amongst British mm. high command. He was mm. someone who would just get stuck in and he was willing as you know, when he went down to Virginia, oh yeah, he tore up he, the Chesapeake. He understood he, how weak it was. I mean, the, yeah, you know, he the he made more progress in yeah. in a couple of months, and yeah. other commanders had done in in yeah. much longer period. But he was never really uh, exploited to his full potential because, ironically mm -hmm. and perhaps understandably, a man who has betrayed yeah, wasn't one trusted, side wasn't will it? not be trusted by the other. Yeah. And it's in very interesting if you look at British newspapers. Uh, the coverage of Arnold's treason is by no means sympathetic in the sense of, wow, we've got a top American general coming over. Mm. Uh, several uh, British newspapers take the line, oh, well, this guy's despicable. Mm. He has betrayed yeah. his comrades. A man who betrays his comrades cannot be mm. trusted. And also, they, they focus on the line that uh, Arnold's uh, treason leads to the uh, capture and execution of Major Andre, well, of course, becomes yeah, a great I mean, that, figure. Yeah, so that coloured it so badly right from the start. And know. so that really, mm -hmm. and and Andre was a very extremely popular figure in the British Army. Oh, Many British officers knew Andre personally. Oh, think of the counterfactuals there. So if Andre wasn't taken and he survives, and Arnold has this great advocate who's very popular. Of course, it was yeah. uh, Arnold yeah. uh, again. <laughs> I see him as a sort of a tragic, yeah. Yeah. flawed figure but I think and again this is something I've, I'm only really starting to explore I think that uh, Arnold acted from his motivation was far more based on what he sincerely believed mm. in terms of the ideological decay mm. of mm -hmm. the revolutionary cause yeah. 
the cause that he betrayed in 1780 wasn't the same cause as the one he'd been wounded in the service for in 1775, let alone in 1777. I think he became disillusioned and people, uh, I think he basically thought that by 1780 the cause was rotten. In fact, by 1779 he thought the cause was rotten. That's when he started to dabble in the idea of going over to the other side. Well, I think any historical figure would want to have the sensitive touch of Stephen Brumwell. We'd all come off better. <laughs> and so this is going to be a great book to look forward to, in addition to all the great books you've given us already. I really appreciate the time you spent talking. And uh, I know you're a good friend of Mount Vernon, and we love having you out here. Uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, uh, seeing your work come along. Well, thanks very much, Doug. And I'm very honoured to be regarded as a friend of Mount Vernon. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.